Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Uh, thank you all very much for uh, your attention. Uh, my name is Tiffany McDonald. I'm a senior advisor with Global Council. Uh, I am uh, formerly an Australian diplomat, but any of the views that I express today will be entirely my own. My guest today is the perfect person to speak on the direction of EU trade trends. Arancha gonzalez Laya was Spain's Foreign Min Minister for Foreign Affairs, European Union and Cooperation from 2020 to 2021, Executive Director of the International Trade Centre, the Chief of Staff to the WTO Director General, the first woman to hold that role, uh, and the WTO Director General's Sherpa at the G20. She is currently the Dean of Par the Paris School of International Affairs at Sciences Po, again, the first woman to hold that role, and like me, started her career as a lawyer. Arantxa, we are living in a time where foreign and trade policy uh, are increasingly intertwined. Your career has had you operating at the highest levels of both foreign and trade policy. COVID has tested the resilience of food supply chains uh, and the war in Ukraine has put pressure on food prices and the prices of inputs. The impacts of geopolitics are increasingly uh, more apparent in the day's, daily life of global citizens uh, despite the positive sentiments we've just heard about food security in the EU. Climate impacts on agriculture. Arantxa, in the context of this polycrisis, you have written about the importance of staying the course on free trade and warned against the negative impacts of protectionism and increasing reliance on industrial policy. My first question is on the EU's trade policy which set out a vision for open, sustainable and assertive trade policy. How would you score the EU on these three pillars? Well, let me first thank you uh, and thank Global Council for the invitation to be uh, back in Brussels. Uh, it's uh, a nice place to be back to. And it's a nice place to be back to to talk precisely about uh, the importance of staying the course on open markets. I know it's very counter-cyclical to talk about this, uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, the geopolitics have changed, uh, the perceptions uh, and the necessities uh, that citizens feel uh, to respond to climate change have accentuated, but the laws of economics haven't changed. Last time I checked, they haven't. And this is where I think we need to place this conversation, Tiffany. Um, Open markets is essential for the European Union, which draws a big part of its own growth from hitching it to the growth of other markets that are growing faster than the EU is. So it would be like shooting uh, itself on the foot for the EU uh, to close its market or to embark into some sort of um, protectionist approach uh, to international trade. Um, under the excuse that this is what will protect the citizens, because we have found out uh, that trade protectionism is not what protects citizens. You need to invest in many other things 
including social safety nets, including infrastructure, uh, including education, including innovation, including competitiveness, and thus will protect the citizens more. But we also have to face a reality, which is that uh, the winds of geopolitics are hitting us very hard, that power uh, as a structuring factor of international affairs is more prevalent today, that uh, trade is also being weaponized, so there needs to be a response. So openness has to be uh, the key, and I think the EU is being faithful to its stance on open markets. It's continuing to not only keep its markets open, but also open other countries' markets to Europe's exports, in particular in a part of the world that is growing very fast, uh, which is Southeast Asia. This is the part, the good news in international trade and therefore the EU efforts with Vietnam, with Singapore and the ones that are under negotiation, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's uh, Philippines, it's a, it's a smart game. Again, in a geopolitical times, you also have to be prepared, building the resilience of the EU uh, economy, building, helping businesses in Europe become more resilient and also being a little bit more assertive in the use of tools that will help you fight against unfair trade. That is not just coming from the East, it's also coming from the West, if I take a map. Uh, and number three, it's also, um, and I think this is important, it was discussed in the previous panel, transforming the European economy, and this means also transforming Europe's trade uh, into uh, a more sustainable one, one that, um, can, through sustainability, improve the competitiveness in Europe, but, but that can also help in the fight against climate change by reducing uh, emissions uh, and uh, by, therefore, uh, making sure we will be able to live in this planet. So I think that the mix in Europe is the right one. It's keeping markets open. It's investing more in the assertiveness, and it's certainly uh, playing uh, a much more serious game on the sustainability side. If I can just pick up on that first point about the, the benefits of open trade and more openness being the the response despite the instinctive um, uh, reversion to more more protectionist uh, um, market interventions. You, you touched on the, the benefits of free trade uh, and in particular the impacts in Asia where we've seen billions, millions of people lifted out of poverty. Uh, that, that's a, a positive story uh, for human development, but it also creates a new market dynamics. These are consumers um, that weren't there, there before. Uh, that that with the then the tension of, of trying to make um, make trade more sustainable presents regulatory challenges. Sure. How you how you govern that framework uh, to make sure that trade, including trade in agriculture, uh, remains open and not over-regulated uh, and continues to deliver benefits uh, for for the global global trading environment. Can we touch and zoom out a bit more in that context and look at um, the World Trade Organization and the role that it can play in keeping markets moving and open? Uh, a decade ago, the Doha Development Round saw discussions uh, grind, grind to a halt. Uh, agriculture was one of the, the more challenging pieces of that negotiation. Uh, what role can the WTO play 
in keeping markets open now in the current environment that we see and in particular around agriculture or have we missed have we missed that moment well i think the wto is an essential uh system uh, which binds basically every country in the world bar uh, a few a few really smaller uh, traders that are not yet part of it but if you look at international trade, uh, everyone that matters for international trade is under this roof. And it's essentially a system of checks and balances uh, to uh, guard against the worst trade instincts that countries always have with this idea that by taking trade protectionist measures, you're going to uh, protect your citizens. In agriculture, this is of particular relevance for several reasons. Uh, one, because agriculture always lagged behind uh, other parts of international trade in terms of this system of checks and balances. Agriculture was not there at the beginning uh, when the old GATT, the predecessor of the WTO, was created for um, different reasons. So it's lagging behind in terms of it being covered by the system of common let's say, guarantees, that is what the WTO offers. But if I look at agricultural markets, some of these markets are extremely shallow. In, in agriculture, this is particularly the case. Only 25% uh, of grains are traded, less than 5% of rice is traded. So trade distortions have a disproportionate impact in shallow markets, which is one reason why if there was a sector where we needed better to improve uh, the regulatory framework, to improve the disciplines, it would be on trading food products. You take a restriction on exports in a market that is extremely shallow, it has an incredible knock-on effect in markets across the world. So you may think you are protecting your citizens by taking an export restrictions. You are creating a hell of a mess around the world for other citizens. So. To me, this tells us that, one, we have to care about strengthening the system of checks and balances that the WTO represents. Two, that the EU has to continue to invest in its strengthening. And again, I'm very aware that this is a counter-cyclical speech, but it's not because it's not famous that we should not call a spade a spade. Uh, and today we need to call a spade a spade. Uh, the WTO needs leadership, and I do hope that Brussels and the EU member states will continue to give it the space that it requires, working with other countries around the world that also see the need for greater, uh, for greater disciplines, including, as I said, and in particular in food, whether it's on regulating uh, unfair uh, practices by means of distorting subsidies, whether it's by means of regulating better export restrictions, or whether it is by uh, lowering uh, the barriers uh, to trade uh, in food products, whether it is, and here is where I want to link it to the beginning of this conversation, on sustainability, which is essential. Again, we just heard it from the previous panel. I'm not going to repeat it. Sustainability is, ex is existential to continuing farming, uh, but sustainability has to has different this. Tackling sustainability in agriculture means different things in different parts of the world. And this is where the WTO is needed to make sure that there is a coordination and not a discrepancy in the manner in which countries are tackling sustainability uh, in agriculture. 
Mm. Oh, that's such an interesting point about the, the the tension between sustainability and and keeping agriculture and and markets open. Uh, I think the WTO also was able, uh, despite some uh, some naysayers about how much the WTO can do, we saw at the MC12 in June last year some deliverables, including on fisheries, uh, which is uh, we talk about agriculture, but obviously fisheries is another important part of the of the the food supply the food supply chain. And on the, that point around export restrictions and it, it seeming instinctively as something to protect uh, our populations, how, how disruptive export restrictions can be on the global agriculture market is a, is a point worth reflecting on. Uh, I think it's the IMF has recently identified there's around 28 countries have, have input uh, food uh, export restrictions, which one, you're sitting in Europe and, and food security appears to be uh, quite stable. Uh, you're starting to see signs in the global markets that, that other countries are potentially not feeling feeling that, uh, that confident or that stable. Uh, and often it's in the most vulnerable, vulnerable economies that we see, we see those reactions. Uh, the other dimension to the global food, uh, global trading system is free trade agreements. Uh, and the EU has a number um, of free trade agreements or, or on foot or in, in, in negotiation. How, how do you see the EU's trade agenda uh, being advanced uh, on the, uh, through the free trade agenda, uh, recognising the, the various uh, internal EU sensitivities, particularly around agriculture? Well, one often forgotten fact, and I'm glad that the, the Commissioner for Agriculture reminding, uh, reminded us of that, is uh, that Europe is an exporter of food too. And not only is it an exporter of food, today, as he said, it's a net positive exporter of food. So it's important to work on the domestic agenda that makes sure that Europe can produce food that is safe, that is sustainable, that is competitive, that is affordable, but it's also as important to the EU to make sure that markets where EU food has exported remain open. And it's especially the case for processed agricultural products, which is a big part of what the EU exports, which essentially is exporting value added. So how does the EU do that? Uh, I mean, partly it has to do with uh, strengthening disciplines that apply across the board. And this is the case for agricultural subsidies. At the end of the day, uh, you can't subsidize in a bilateral level, you subsidize. So this is systemic. So partly it's got to do with addressing the systemic part of uh, food trade. And partly it's got to do with uh, an agenda for international trade that remains robust because this is also how the EU uh, will open markets for its exports. And again, let's not forget, the EU is a net food exporter. Exporter. So it's important to act domestically, but it's also important to keep markets of others open. So where is the... Um, Obviously, if you want others to open their markets, you have to be ready to open your markets too. You know, this is, uh, this is why uh, trade is not a zero-sum game. It's a positive-sum game. So that, this is where uh, 
you know, uh, it's about calibrating, I guess, uh, but understanding mm. that trade is important to EU farming too. I read a statistic that the EU is the top exporter for export partner for 74 countries. Uh, and that uh, exports account for something like 35 million jobs uh, within the EU and 60% of the imports uh, are inputs into export, um, EU exports. So there's a really strong um, visual there in those statistics about how important uh, exports are to the EU uh, and, and as you've just said, including on the agricultural piece. And as we were talking before, the rising the rising living standards uh, in in the Indo-Pacific and elsewhere provides more more opportunity for for exports. That said, we're living in a time, as we mentioned, around poly uh, poly crisis as it's being characterised, and we're seeing uh, uh, sort of instinctive reactions to towards more domestically focused. Um, policies and and as you mentioned on a map if you look east and west uh we're seeing those signs uh, on both both sides of uh, of the globe the there's been um in the discussion of other other um uh, technologies and uh, exports and other um, subject matters uh there's been uh in discussions around friend shoring or near shoring uh, this is a sort of a gathering gathering momentum. Given, I, I think I can anticipate what your reaction will be. But is is that part of the is that part of the solution of of providing more resilient supply chains, or uh, are we headed in a, a direction that will make uh, trade more more fragmented and and less efficient by doing so? So first. Um I think um, after spending a bit of time uh, of my life in, in the geoeconomics, I spent part of my time in the, on the geopolitical side too. And maybe this has cured me against uh, trying to link uh, trade with friends or with enemies, because uh, the enemies of yesterday all of a sudden become the friends of today. So I would not, I would hesitate a lot to talk about French Ari. And I don't like uh, the idea that we divide the world between friends and enemies. I don't think it makes much sense. At least I don't see this being, let's say, on display at the moment. But I do think that geopolitics today obliges all of us to be much more attentive to resilience building, to incorporating security considerations into our economies, to uh, working more uh, to ensure that um, diversifying, uh, not relying on single suppliers, uh, to um, getting parts of your value chains maybe closer to where your consumers will be, are all important ingredients uh, to ensure that you can continue to benefit uh, from open markets. So I do think that there is a big need to rethink resilience and to incorporate resilience in international trade uh, I would not call this uh, French jarring uh, for reasons that uh, I have mentioned, um, but it is, you know, it's a it's a reality that uh, we cannot today um, pretend that security does not play a role and cannot needs to be incorporated basically in our strategies. It's uh, is the name of the game. 
And how do we, ha, have you got any suggestions on how, how we achieve that, how we do that? Any practical? I think, um, I mean, I would point to, um, because we are here in Brussels, I mean, it's not because Brussels is the only one doing it, but I would point at uh, the strategy on raw materials, for example, that the EU uh, is doing. It's a scanning. First, where the vulnerabilities to the EU value chains are, uh, by looking at where there is excessive reliance. And by the way, excessive reliance does not mean that some countries are good and some countries are bad. It's simply that you, if you have too many eggs in one basket, you are assuming today a much greater risk than you did in the past. So I think the raw materials approach of the EU, which is first, let's check where our vulnerabilities are. And step number two, let's build a set of actions that will help us reduce these vulnerabilities and they're also uh, doing trade agreements with countries that can provide alternative sources of supply, investing in partnership agreements with other countries to help um, them uh, also be part of this desire uh, to participate in trade, but with more value added is a bit what I've seen the EU do with its agreement uh, recently concluded with Chile, for example, Chile is today uh, home uh, to many uh, of the raw materials that EU needs uh, for its climate and digital transformations. So it's a, to me, this is like a good way to go. This is at the macro level, but every business will also have to do that. And I know, uh, I mean, I spend a lot of time with businesses. I know how much they are working to also map their vulnerabilities and take measures that would help them manage geopolitical risks, therefore uh, security risks, but also climate risks, but also, uh, uh, you know, uh, this myriad of risks that are appearing. The name of the game today is risk management. Um, and before these risks had very precise contours, and today uh, they have a new one, they have a new phase called geopolitics, uh, geopolitical risks that need to be inputted uh, in the strategies of businesses and in the strategies of governments. So risk management that looks for opportunities for collaboration, uh, multilateral, uh, bilateral collaboration, not necessarily within, uh, within the EU market, but externally. Uh, you've written before about the, the benefits that trade brings for the most vulnerable uh, in in um, in um, the communities, the um, the role that trade plays in lifting living standards, aid for trade uh, is something that you, I know you've been very uh, closely involved in. Do you see a role uh, for that in the the risk management strategies going forward? Well, a big risk management strategy, but this is uh, more uh, to manage the risk of a backlash against open markets uh, is investing clearly in social safety nets. I mean, what we have seen in some countries and countries that are very close to the European Union, like the United States has been, and also here in the, Euro in the European Union and uh, very close to here, Brussels, uh, what we have seen is a backlash against open markets. The transformations that the economies have gone through, the digitalization, the technological progress, they have resulted in big transformations also in the labor market inequalities uh, and insufficient and unfair working conditions, uh, labor standards have also led uh, to skepticism about open markets. So open markets, international trade has been a bit the lightning rod uh, against all this dissatisfaction with the way in which 
economies work. There has to be a response to that, not only uh, from the trade community, or mostly not by the trade community, but by other communities around trade that have to work uh, to improve, address all these challenges from the transformation of the labor market uh, to uh, proper working conditions to adequate social safety nets. And if we do not do that, we know that the backlash will be on open markets, on international trade. So that's where the, uh, the response has to be. In, I would say that for many countries around the world, this has to come in the form of uh, support and cooperation from its partners and in, the, in, in us maintaining our, our markets open, because this is how they hitch also on the one wagon of innovation, competitiveness, which they also need. So this is where I see a win-win uh, partnership, but built around this idea that you have to make trade possible, you have to make trade happen, and you have to make sure that trade works for all. And this is unfortunately not the task of trade negotiators. So helping, uh, helping others will help help the trade environment within our own countries is the thesis that you, um, you, you keep markets open, you keep, um, you refrain from the instinctive protectionist measures that um, some, some governments may feel inclined towards because of domestic political pressures uh, and the, the growing risks around supply chains and, and um, uh, food security. Help those countries that need um, support to meet the standards. The EU's trade policy has made it clear that that, that will be part of the the forward plan is to to use trade policy to see lift uh, a lifting of of standards whether it's around sustainability or fair trade or um, labor standards Aracha, final final comment from you before we um, put, open up to questions in the audience um, the future the future direction of of trade policy um, for for the EU. You feel that we're in a, a, a comfortable space now, or are there headwinds uh, ahead that we should be looking at? No, we're not. We're not in a comfortable space, not at all. Uh, there are uh, headwinds from within, and there are headwinds from outside, and it's about how the EU will navigate. Uh, the stool that will matter. I mean, the tools are there. If I look at the policy. The policy statement is a good one, in my view, uh, with this uh, triple lens of open, uh, sustainable, including sustainable from the social point of view, let's not forget, uh, and assertive. Uh, but what will be difficult for the EU is to keep the course unless the EU finds a big coalition of partners around the world that will see it as it sees it. So a lot of work uh, for the EU not only in Brussels, but uh, in capitals around the world to be, build this coalition of countries that want uh, to work along those lines. Arantxa, thank you. You've given us great, a great deal of food for thought. Can I throw to the audience, are there any questions? And please introduce yourself when you ask the question. Hi, I'm uh, Daniel Reinemann from uh, Bioenergy Europe. And uh, the question I had was, uh, talking about how uh, the, the trade situation is going to evolve. Uh, one of the uh, situations that's a little bit complicated with the WTO is that uh, production practices and methods are not something that's supposed to be able to use as a discrimination to discriminate on the basis of trade. And I was wondering, how do you see the EU's 
continuing climate ambitions and environmental goals, and also just the uh, social assurances uh, fitting into the restrictions that are placed on uh, trade practices and trade agreements through the WTO, and how do does the EU continue to navigate that moving forward? Thank you. Well, I think um, uh, when I hear what the EU says, um, what it says is that uh, its practices and its regulations are compatible with the WTO. When I go to Geneva um, and I listen to the views of the partners, the tune is a little bit different. Um, this is where I think that what has happened uh, this past week in Davos is so important because finally a group of countries have gotten together, the EU is there, but many other countries are there in a coalition to discuss how to marry trade and sustainability in a manner that is coherent, but also that is coordinated. So, and this obviously um, has climate change at its heart. It's no secret uh, that when you look around the world and you look at what's happening between the EU and the US on the fight against climate change, with all the good news that the EU, uh, that the US has rejoined the fight against climate change, it's pretty clear that the instruments that are being used on both constituencies to do that are not only different, but they are incompatible. So what I think would be very important is to build on this coalition of uh, trade and sustainability, trade and climate change uh, launched last week to discuss exactly how uh, the quest for sustainability by members of the WTO and the desire to fight against climate change can be done in a manner that is not uh, leading to negative spillovers uh, for others. So I would say watch that space. And I think that's a perfect segue for us to uh, show our thanks to Arantxa and move to our next, our next panel led by uh, Global Council's Practice Director, Daniel Caparelli. Uh, Arantxa, thank you so much for your insights. You. Fascinating uh, to hear your views. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.